T-A-T-T, stands for tired all the time. We have normalized tiredness in our community today. So it's now normal for everyone to run on empty, to have no petrol in the tank. And where do they get that petrol from? Where do they get that stimulation from? They get it from a cup of coffee, a cup of tea, a bit of chocolate. They get it from an alcoholic beverage. The stimulants do not give you energy. They give you false energy. They steal the energy they promise to give you. Well, hello and welcome. Welcome to another episode of the Finding Equilibrium show. Delighted to be here and delighted that you're here and delighted that my guest today is someone I know really well, uh, Dr. Greg Fitzgerald, uh, who is um, a naturopath, an osteopath and a chiro, which is a wonderful combination. And, uh, you know, I know you're super busy, uh, Greg, but I'm really delighted that we finally uh, managed to make this happen. So how are you today? Top of the world, thanks, Lawrence, and thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to uh, to the interview very much. Wonderful, wonderful. So for people who aren't uh, aware of you or familiar with your work, I'd love you to just expand and, and just tell us a little bit about how you became what you are today and and, and, and how you do, uh, and what drove you to do the work that you actually do. Right, well, um, I was a high school teacher for seven years back in the 70s. And um, I became increasingly concerned with the level of health and fitness of the students I was teaching in high school, not to mention the teachers I taught with. And um, I became interested in fitness first, just in getting fitter. And that morphed into an interest in health. After seven years of teaching, I decided to do a one night a week nutrition course for 10 weeks. Um, during which I really uh, made a decision to leave teaching and pursue a three-year full-time course in naturopathy. Uh, after that, I then went on and did a dual qualification in osteopathy and chiropractic and set a clinic up down in Cronulla, uh, southern Sydney. And now I'm working from home. In this room here is my consultation room. And uh, I've been practicing now, uh, seeing patients for 40 years this year. Wow. So 40 years. I mean, that's that, and, and that's really um, interesting how you spotted the kind of signs of um, of imbalance, let's say, and, and, and um, health issues back in the 70s. And uh, things have certainly changed. Uh, I'd love you to kind of share the principles that your practice is currently uh, based on. Well, my practice is a, a unique practice in a way in that I see patients coming in with uh, musculoskeletal problems you know bad necks bad backs chronic low back pain interscapular tension etc um, as a physiotherapist would see and a chiropractor and osteopath would see but in addition to that <clears throat> i also see a wide range of patients coming to see me for naturopathic or lifestyle or wellness consultations who are suffering from chronic illnesses you know things like asthma and chronic migraines pulmonary problems, you know, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, um, depression, anxiety. So it's an eclectic practice and it's been a, an absolute thrill to be a part of that practice and to help a few people along the way. And, and what types of tools do you um, do you use? So when people come in with any of those problems, uh, and it is unique and different because often you see multiple people for uh, for some of the conditions that you spoke at, that you just spoke about. Um, but what types of tools do you use to help people um, feel better? That's a good question, and the the basic um, philosophy that I've embraced now for, for forty years are the principles and practices of a concept called natural hygiene, which is the science and the art of health and disease. Um, study, it studies the biology and the physiology of health, <clears throat> and it applies the principles of life, which indeed are the principles of health. And so I apply those principles to almost every patient I see to a, a larger or lesser degree, depending on the presentation of that patient, so, and basically natural hygiene rests on the premise that the human body is self-developing, it's self-defending, 
and it's self-repairing. So in other words, the greatest nurse in the world is Mother Nature. So we try to align ourselves with natural principles in the preservation of health and the recovery of health to the best of that patient's abilities. Right. So give me an example then, just for people who are not at all familiar with um, uh, the principles of natural hygiene, um, how someone comes to see you um, with whatever condition, um, and then what type of um, treatment would you give them uh, to, um, uh, to help alleviate their, um, their, their issues? Okay, again, that depends on the presentation. For example, uh, I'll get someone coming in to see me with a low back problem. They may have um, lifted something very heavy and they've wrenched their back and they've torn some muscles or they've um, got some issue with their back which has caused them pain and they come to see me. Now, my questioning to that person would be, has this been a chronic problem, something you've had for a long, long time or has it just come on suddenly and you've had no history of prior low back pain? That sort of patient comes in um, and I then would treat them physically. I would not go into lifestyle with them as much because their problem is of an injury. It is an event that happened to them. They may have been involved in a car accident, had whiplash uh, with no prior history of neck problems. So I work on them and I then implement things like rest. I say, okay, I would recommend that I'll treat the neck and loosen the muscles for you using heat and deep tissue work and gentle manipulation if so, if so needed. But then I would ask that person to implement rest so they don't exercise that area for a few days, maybe a week even, depending on the severity. And that would engage one of the principles of natural hygiene, which is the study of, and the bio, of the biology of health. We need to rest when we've been injured or when we're sick. So we then would recommend that they rest. Do not exercise because exercise is contraindicated when someone is injured. You never see an animal that exercises when it's injured. They do the opposite. They stop all exercise. We tend to think we have to exercise to, to recover from the injury, which is a, a real bad mistake. So we would implement those suggestions to the patient while still doing a physical treatment on that patient, you know, loosening up the soft tissues, et cetera, applying heat to the area, cream to the area, et cetera. Another patient might come in and they've had chronic low back pain for 15 years. Uh, they've got neck problems as well. So when I look at that person, I, I regard that as I would a chronic illness like diabetes. And so I go into their lifestyle. I don't just say, okay, I'll treat you because often those people have been to everybody. They've been to physios, chiros, osteos, massage therapists, Reiki therapists. They've been everywhere and they get at best temporary relief. So I then go into, okay, let's look at what's causing your lower back or your neck pain that's been chronic with you for so long that the only relief you get is temporary relief from treatments, physical treatments, or you might get temporary relief from drugs. We don't want that, of course, to go on forever um, because that person will only get worse. So with those people, I ask them things like, what do they eat? What, do, how, what time do they go to bed? Do they go to bed the same day they get up? And many patients don't go to bed until the next day. They'll get up at 7 a.m. and go to bed at 1 a.m. Right. So they never go to bed the same day they get up. They're lacking sleep. They're sleep deprived. Healing never occurs in a sleep deprived person. So we would get them to follow some basic health principles, which in effect are natural hygiene known for 200 years, that we need rest. We would get them to stop exercising temporarily because it's inappropriate. We would get them to change their diet. Maybe they need a change of diet inside because they're overweight. So any weight on the tummy can really put the um, physiology and the, and the um, biology of the body out if you're carrying too much visceral fat around the abdomen. So we look at that because my aim in those patients, Lawrence, is not just to give them a day or two of relief because back they come again and I, I don't want to be seen as a conveyor belt. Mm. It's getting patients to come in on a conveyor belt. I would like to see them improve their situation so one day my services become redundant. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, the thing, and this term lifestyle medicine that, that, that we, that we hear a lot, um, 
when you talk about when you talk about lifestyle medicine to most people i would argue they understand it it makes sense to them what they eat the time they go to bed or the quality of their sleep you know whether they exercise or not um, those things are, are, are very important but what we often see is that people often don't follow those th those principles if you like that make sense and i'd love you to um, speak to what do you think gets in the way of people actually supporting themselves is there a particular type of person who has a lot of willpower and is particularly good at these things or do, do things have to get so bad that that's when they take action but having seen so many people over you know many years uh, I, i'm cu curious to know why people don't necessarily follow principles that are really going to support them to be uh, to be well that's a very good question it's like how long is a piece of string um everyone's different but um i have found it so in my, in my career that i really can't help people who won't won't partake in their own recovery right so i, I don't want to waste people's time or money and I've actually said to people, you know, in a kind way, in a caring way, in a compassionate way, that um, I would uh, not be able to help them for, for very long unless they took part in their own recovery. Now, what makes someone take part in their own recovery at a high level and what makes someone not want to take part in their own recovery at all? That's a very complicated and complex question. Yeah. We're all now living in this age of instant. <clears throat> you know, years ago it was delayed gratification, then it was instant gratification, now it's constant gratification 24-7 almost. So we're living in this age where we're in the quick fix. It's, it's you know, I want a pill for every ill and I'll pay the bill. Mm. A, a bill pays the, for the pill for every ill. So we're living in an age where people expect to get better quick. And there's pressures on people. You know, that life today is stressful for the majority of people. There are a lot of expectations from outside in, and then people place expectations from inside out on themselves. Um, and there's pressure to get back to work. You know, years and years ago, there, was, there were things in Australia called convalescent homes, where people who were feeling overwhelmed, they had de depression, or we used to call a nervous breakdown back in the day, they would go away to a secluded area and they would just rest and recalibrate their nervous system. Now, I went to a seminar for doctors about five years back. I remember it distinctly, and I've actually written about it in one of my articles. I was in the audience and they were talking about getting people back to work after sustaining injuries. And the theme of the day was get them back as soon as possible post-injury, whether it be a car accident or a work-related injury, it was irrelevant. If someone was injured and they were off work, the theme of the day was get them back ASAP to work using whatever modalities possible, drugs, anti-inflammatories, painkillers, chiro, physio, you just whack them with everything you can so they can get back on the conveyor belt of work. Right. I put my hand up and I said, don't you think we're doing, we're getting, giving painkillers and anti-inflammatories too soon? And the lecturer at the college or the, uh, at the talk said, on the contrary, we're doing it too late. It should be done immediately. Get them back as soon as we can. And this just really encapsulated the, the, the problem with our society today. We're even being taught this. We had the, the soldier on ad on television for 20 years with Codrill. So if you got sick, the message was soldier on, soldier on, keep going. And it was a very apt metaphor. Mm. When you think about, they used the term soldiering, you know, and soldiers have to soldier on at times simply because they're fighting for their lives. Mm. So it was a very apt metaphor, one of sacrifice, sacrifice for the common good, go out and just doesn't matter what you feel like, go back to work and contribute. Well, this doesn't work. And thank God, one of the blessings in the last three years of this stuff going on with COVID has been the fact that at least the medical profession now realises that we should not be soldiering on. You know, I've always said for 25, 30 years, soldiering on kills more people than soldiering. <laughs> and so whatever lies within that person 
that allows them to take more responsibility for their health than others, it's a very difficult thing to pinpoint. Um, mm. It reminds me of the, of the um, story of the man walking down the street and he looks across and in the house on the porch, there's an old dog sitting down and it's moaning in pain. And the gentleman walking past down the street sees a, a, an old man sitting next to the dog on the porch. And as the dog's moaning in this pain, he says to the gentleman, hey, mate, what's wrong with your dog? You know, it's moaning. And the gentleman on the porch says, oh, don't worry about him. You know, he's just lying on a nail. <laughs> and the guy from the walking down the road says, well, why doesn't he get off the nail? And the old guy says, well, he hasn't suffered enough yet. <laughs> and so oftentimes it does take a major scare for people to take more responsibility for their health. Mm. Because we've all been indoctrinated, Lawrence, to view sickness as an enemy, to view our symptoms as anathema to health, as a violation of our being. Instead of understanding the human body is intelligent. It doesn't manifest these energy expensive symptoms for the love of it, for the fun of it. It doesn't do that. You know, to get sick requires energy. That's why when you get sick, you haven't got any energy because mm. the body is using every vestige of energy it can to rectify the abnormality within. Mm. But we've been indoctrinated by the medical profession who are, you know, married to the drug companies that we view these symptoms as anathema to our health as inimical to health and to view those symptoms as representing a body out of control. Whereas with my understanding of natural hygiene, which is um, self-explanatory, it doesn't need proving, you know, it's an axiomatic truth that the human body will always work in its own betterment if given the proper conditions. So we view that differently. We view symptoms as not an enemy, as not inimical to health, as not revealing the body is out of control at all. The symptoms are within control of the body because they're designed to rectify the body. This is one of the greatest fault lines running through Western medicine. And so why don't people take more responsibility? Wow, if you could get that and you could bottle it, you might become a billionaire overnight. <laughs> it's, it, it's, it is a fascinating topic and we can talk about it for forever. One of the things that you said was about the body can can heal and can be, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, given the proper conditions. Um, what are the proper conditions um, to allow um, good health, or to allow people wherever they are, you know, there's going to be people listening to this who are feeling, you know, just a bit off. Um, some people will feel like very sick, but often, you know, the people who come to you, uh, maybe they've got an acute condition, but many people just don't have good energy or just, don't, you know, feel tired a lot. But that's become kind of normal because a lot of people feel like that. And uh, and um, and we can uh, often kind of confuse uh, that. just think, you know, we're getting older or or, or, or something external, if you like, has driven that um, that that state. Um, but I'm curious to know what the proper conditions are to allow uh, somebody to really experience good health and good energy. Great question. When you consider human life and the miracle that we witness every day, you look at a, a newborn. You know, a newborn emanates from the my, microscopic union of an egg and a sperm cell. Give it nine months with only the conditions of life needed. Now, what are those conditions of life? They are food. Where does the baby get the food from? From the umbilical cord from the mother. They get water. Where from? The mother. They get exercise and they start exercising you know, three or four months into their development by kicking a leg and moving an arm. So activity starts off in, in utero. Um, it's protected from violence. It has oxygen coming from the umbilical cord. Um, all of these biological needs are supplied to the baby in utero to give birth nine months later to a healthy baby, generally speaking. Now, those conditions of life are also the conditions of health. So when we are sick, if we believe that the human body is intelligently designed and we do believe that those symptoms play a purpose in our recovery, 
we then have to modify the conditions of life in order for the body to maximize its own self-healing abilities. So the body will always work to its own betterment. Um, that is a, an axiomatic truth. That's why when I cut my finger nearly off the other day, after three weeks back, I nearly severed my finger. I didn't do anything to it. I just kept it clean. I, I protected it from repeated trauma and it got better. It's damaged, but I can move it. No pain. It's good. What did that? No extraneous factor that I put on it did it. I just wrapped it up and kept it from being opened up again. I put no cream on it. I put no drugs on it. I took nothing extra. I just let the normal processes of healing take place and it got better. Hmm. We need to look at when we get sick, we need to think, okay, is my nose running because it is out of control? No, the, the nose is running just like any other aperture of the body. Um, you've got 10 holes in the body. Let's count them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and the back, the anus, and the skin is 10. Any of those holes or apertures will be used as a safety valve to keep our body homeostatically balanced. So we'll get a runny nose, we'll cough and get mucus up, our eyes will get pus, junk coming out, we can get from the any hole, skin eruptions. So what we need to do when we're sick is we need to provide our body with the ideal conditions for its own recovery. Because it wants to get better, we accept that. So what do we do? Now we do know that exercise is a normal part of life. But in that particular case where we're not well, the body takes energy away from us for the reason that we don't exercise. So we need to honor that, honor that wisdom. So when we do get sick, we say, right, I don't need to exercise today. It is not appropriate for me, and I will rest more. By resting more, we give the body more energy to do its internal cleaning and its reparatory work. Then on the other hand, we might feel we don't get hungry when we're sick, so we lose our appetite, which is in the mouth, not the stomach. So we lose our hunger or our appetite. By doing that, which is a thing called anorexia in medicine, that's different to the anorexia nervosa, which is a mental disorder where people think they're fat when they're really thin, Anorexia is simply the medical term meaning a lot loss of hunger. We need to honour that loss of hunger by not eating for a short time. And so by giving the body the energy by not exercising, not working and not eating, um, or just eating very lightly, depending on the severity of the illness, we allow the body the maximum energy to heal itself. As I said before, Mother Nature is the best nurse. And so this is what we would recommend we recommend the person starts to really think about their bodies and trust their bodies, not just treat their bodies. We're into, the, into this treatment era where whatever happens, we have a treatment for it. So we're really abrogating and, and dishonouring the human body's capacity to heal itself. Mm. And this is one of the main reasons why we end up with comorbidities because the person had the first morbidity or first disease and they never really understood it or never really honoured their body by making any changes to their lifestyle. Mm. They just kept eating the same, doing the same, working the same. And they'd go off to a doctor who'd give them a pill to, as an anti-inflammatory to bombard the body and suppress all of those cytokines and the anti-inflammatories. They give them, take them by mouth. These things are very dangerous when we don't remove the causes. These build toxicity within the body. We end up with another disease sometime later. The second one, we go off to a different specialist. So no, we're not trained these days to understand our body because there's no money in that. When people become quite empowered and they need um, outside help less often, I'm not saying never, of course, but when they need outside help less often, no one makes any money out of that. Mm. <laughs> Everything you say makes so much sense. Just want to change the gear a little bit because we've touched on it and we've talked about different tools and different things people can use. You've spoken about rest. You've spoken about sleep. You've spoken about really understanding the power of the body. And we've touched on food. And I've heard you say previously that every species has an ideal diet. And I know in our culture, uh, for many reasons, Food can be a huge source of confusion and um, problems for people who try different diets, different ways of eating. Um, 
I'm curious to know what you uh, believe or what natural hygiene tells us is the 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 the, the most appropriate um, diet for us as humans uh, to be uh, in balance. You know, going back 200 years, when the early hygienists, the early natural hygienists started really studying this subject about health and looking at the various um, biological uh, requirements of a healthy person, such as food and water and exercise, etc. The studies showed 200 years ago that the ideal diet for a human being is not a diet based on animal foods. It's a diet based on plants, things that grow in the ground, not that walk on the ground. And so the diet recommended and proposed by hygienists for, for over 200 years has been one where if we eat any animal protein, it is in insignificant amounts. It is not a major part of the human dietary. So we would argue for a whole food plant-based diet, not necessarily a whole food plant-based exclusive diet in every situation. But by and large, we're looking at our main source of calories, our main source of protein, our main source of carbohydrate, our main source of fat, our main source indeed of water should come from the food we eat. And so we're recommending a plant-based whole food diet. Okay, cool. So a whole food, um, a, ho a whole food plant-based diet. So that would be eating. So when you when you say plants, just for people who um, who may not be clear what that actually means, what are the specific things that uh, the the ingredients, if you like, of a whole food plant-based uh, whole food plant-based diet? We're looking at it, vegetables. Okay. The whole um, plethora of vegetables there. We're looking at salads, raw salads, which are raw vegetables. Mm -hmm. We're looking at steamed, um, uh, dry baked uh, vegetables. We're looking at soups made of vegetables. So vegetables should form the bulk of a person's diet. It should be a major part of their diet, vegetables. Uh, and this is not even in contention today. This is accepted by every single healthcare professional that vegetables should play a major role. That's not in question whatsoever now. Even amongst those that eat animal protein, they still say vegetables are important. Although there is now a, a, another class of complete carnivores, they think we should live on meat only. Well, that's another thing altogether. That's a, that's a bridge too far for me. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so vegetables. Then we have fruit, you know, the whole fruit. So we're not talking of juices, fruit juices here. We're talking of fruit that comes in a package with fibre and water and the skin, et cetera, mm -hmm. where you're using your teeth to chew it. So, you know, remember that the dentition is the first part of the digestive tract, the teeth. You know, there's no teeth in the stomach. And so you've got to chew in your mouth. So we would recommend eating the fruit in preference to drinking the juice. Uh, we're not in favour of that uh, too much. We would also recommend things like nuts and seeds, raw and unsalted. So, you know, cashews, almonds, hazelnuts, walnuts, Brazil nuts, sunflower seeds, pecan, all that. Sunflower seeds and, and pumpkin seeds are very high in minerals and trace elements as well, containing lots of good soluble and insoluble fibre. Then we, we look at legumes, which are the beans, the dried beans, the pinto beans, cannellini beans, the black beans, the uh, chickpeas, the lentils. Those particular legumes are a wonderful source of butyrate for the gut, which is a, a compound that the gut bacteria can help synthesize when you eat these legumes. And, and butyrate is such a great anti-cancer compound. You know, all of the blue zones, which are the longest lived cultures on earth, the common denominator running through their diet is the daily consumption of some form of legumes, beans. And then we have grains. Um, whole grains, preferably, not refined and processed white bread, white cake, white biscuit, white rice, white flour, white sugar. These are things we don't recommend. Um, and the hygienist 200 years ago, in the early days of processing, said, no, this particular processing of bread, which the rich people used to do, the poor people used to have dark bread and wholemeal bread, you know, coarse bread. The hygienist would say, no, no, no. The less refined, the better. So we would be against the refining of food. We're against a diet too heavy in animal foods and we're against too much stimulation in the form of drinks, such as coffee and tea and alcohol. 
So these things have no part to play in a healthy program. You don't give a newborn baby a dose of coffee or a dose of tea. We wait until we pervert our taste to do that as adults. Yes. In interesting. Um, just picking up on the, the topic of water, because we've, we've mentioned this, and I know your, your view of hydration is a little bit different to, um, to, to uh, what uh, I guess is a common belief. Um, I'd love you to speak to that in terms of um, what, uh, you know, what the recommendation is um, from your point of view in terms of, um, in terms of hydration. Um, hydration is um, something where, unfortunately, it's been medicalized and because of this penchant of modern medicine and even indeed science to um, embrace reductionism, people think that many of their problems come about because they don't drink enough water. And so they'll go on this water gorging and they'll drink two to three litres a day. And they never, they never stop peeing. You know, they're getting up three times a night to the toilet and peeing all day long and stuff like this. You know, hygienists 200 years ago had the saying, which they still have today, health by healthful living. And we have a thirst. We are born with a thirst. Now, I was raised in the 50s, and I can recall running around the neighbourhood as a young child, mostly barefoot, playing with my friends, never having a water bottle, never. We never took a water. We didn't even have a water bottle. We didn't even have bottled water in those days. That came out in the late 70s as an American thing to make money from people drinking water. So it's no coincidence that we've now hooked onto this bandwagon of every five seconds having a drink of water, and that came about at the same time as the bottled water industry started to flourish. So we would argue that you listen to your body, you respect and honour your body's signals. We aren't robots. We, don't, we, don't, we aren't rats in a rat, rat cage. We aren't fed on a treadmill. We don't drink on a, as we are on a treadmill. We drink and eat individually. So everyone's requirements for those biological needs will differ. My needs for water differ from day to day. Why would they differ? Well, what if, for example, I do no exercise on a day? I don't go for a brisk walk. I don't go to the gym. I don't play tennis. My requirements for fluid will be less than on days where I engage in vigorous activity. So if I go for a very brisk walk for an hour or I play tennis or I go to the gym, my requirements for water go up. Understandably, just like my dog, if I take him for a walk and a run, he gets thirstier. If I'm sedentary, I become less thirsty. So we argue, listen to your body. Don't listen to some supposed expert, some guru who says to drink so many litres of water a day, have three or four or five, six meals a day, you know, have sex twice a week, otherwise you've got it, you're suffering from some sort of psychological problem. These are ridiculous statements reflecting how we have gone so far removed from the natural body cycles. We're teaching people to have no respect for their body signals whatsoever, and that's one reason why we're in such a, a wretched mess in our society with people so sick from a young age today. So with water, hygienists have said for hundreds of years now, drink when you're thirsty or dry. Now, in 1945, Lawrence, the first public health recommendations came into Australia after the Second World War, whereby the supposed august bodies running the health area in our country put out these particular recommendations on water. And they did say that we should be having roughly um, two litres of water a day. However, the caveat was the water should come from both fluids we drink and the food we eat. Wow. Now, in that intervening time or inter uh, intermediate time between 45 and today, that has now morphed into drinking two litres a day. So we're getting these people just gorging on water. It's so good to see also that the science is now catching up. And if anyone listening to this would like, email me on greg at healthforlife.com.au and I will send you some articles by dietitians, doctors, and even professors of public health who are now coming out and saying too much water is not only unnecessary, it's potentially dangerous. Right. 
In fact, there was an article written and an interview given um, conducted by Dr. Um, by Dr. John Campbell. It's on my website. And he interviewed a professor of public health called Dr. Stephen Hopshin Can. It's a brilliant interview available for anyone. I can email it to you, any of your listeners. And in that interview, the doctor said, he said, what we're doing with COVID when people get sick with some supposedly infectious illness, such as, you know, fevers and uh, muscle aches and pains, lethargy, whatever. What we're doing with these people, insofar as in hospital, they hydrate them, give them a lot of water, they encourage them to eat, and they routinely suppress their fevers with antipyretic drugs. He made the statement. He said those three things we now need to look upon as deleterious for their health and compromising their own survival and being released from hospital. So we are so pleased to see the science is now catching up. Mm. And that definitely feels like it's happening. The science is catching up. But I guess where a lot of people listen to this is the paradigm is shifted. So we now know that uh, a lot of the... Um, a lot of the practices, if you like, that we've been encouraged to follow are not actually supporting our health. But I'd love to really talk to that person who is kind of realizing that they need to shift, they need to change, they need to take back um, control. However, it all feels overwhelming because really change, as we know, is hard, even though, and we, we've touched on that on this in, in this interview, even though you know that eating well is going to uh, is going to actually support you, we don't because we've lost um, awareness of what eating well is. And you've covered um, you've covered that in this um, in, in this discussion. But what's the starting point for someone who's at the beginning of their journey or is as a family that they would like to help to um, improve. And we all have people in our families who have got chronic conditions who are really suffering um, and are dependent on on the system that, that you've described and uh, are, are examples of what, of what you've described. How do uh, how does someone begin their journey to better health? What, what, what would you recommend as a starting point? A good question again. And we all must understand too that some people don't prioritize their health. Um, I remember years back, or decades in fact back, Dr. Alec Burton, who was one of my main mentors in my career, who was the uh, leader of the natural hygiene, mo hygiene movement for many, many decades. Um, he said to me, Greg, he said, always ask a patient who is sick, are they serious about recovering their health? Are they serious? Because it's, as you said rightly, Lawrence, change is not easy for people. It's not easy to change your habits. You know, I, I used to try and change people. And then Dawn, my wife, who was far more wise than me, she'd say to me day after day, Greg, you're wasting your time. The person doesn't want to change. They're not interested. But, 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 honey, I know they can get better. They can get, I know, Greg, she'd say, but they're not interested. Ah, and it took me years, I'm a slow learner, and it took me years to realise that some people haven't suffered enough, just like the dog on the porch. Now, if someone is interested and they have prioritised their health and they are serious about their health, the first thing to change is their diet, in my opinion. And the first question I ask them when they come in is, do you drink caffeine? Do you drink coffee and tea every day of your life? This is such an important thing and it is so overlooked. It is so confusing for people because we've been led to believe that tea is good for us. Green, black tea is good because it contains antioxidants and coffee is good for us because it contains polyphenols, <laughs> which are good for us. Well, let me tell you that snake venom contains antioxidants too. <laughs> Just because something contains something that's beneficial it doesn't justify it as a food for humans or a drink for humans. And what I find in the clinic over the last 40 years is under, underlying most people's chronic illnesses, here I'm talking about chronic illness, not talking about someone who just wrenched their neck in lifting a heavy object. I'm talking about someone who's got a chronic problem. Most people with chronic problems have low energy. 
I call it T-A-T-T. I've got an article. I'll send it out to any one of your listeners if they just email me called um, TAT is a dangerous problem. T-A-T-T stands for tired all the time. And we have, as you've said rightly at the start of this interview, we have normalised tiredness in our community today. We've normalised it. So it's now normal for everyone to run on empty, to have no petrol in the tank. And where do they get that petrol from? Where do they get that stimulation from? They get it from a cup of coffee, a cup of tea, a bit of chocolate. They get it from an alcoholic beverage. They go home, whatever. So these things are stimulants. And part of the hygienic philosophy is you stay away from stimulants because stimulants do not give you energy. They give you false energy. They steal the energy they promise to give you. So it leads to what's called the sawtooth curve. So when someone wakes up in the morning, generally they're tired. When they wake, they wake tired. They don't jump out of bed. They don't wake refreshed. They wake tired. So when they have a cup of coffee or tea at the start of the morning, the blood sugar goes up very rapidly. I may feel a bit better, but it's not their energy. It's, it's stolen energy. The body has got to detoxify that caffeine and all of the other chemicals in that particular drink. And that particular process gives one a false feeling of energy. It's what we call an uncompensated energy. There's no compensation for it. Whereas if I'm, if I'm, for example, exercising, that's also a stimulant. Exercise itself is a stimulant. That is a compensated energy in that you're going to get so many benefits from expending energy with exercise. So the first thing I say to people is, look, your recovery will depend on your energy because without energy, there's no healing. Healing requires energy. And healing and growing are very much similar processes in the human body. For example, we've got a, a, a three-month-old granddaughter now, Elodie, and she sleeps a lot. Or she doesn't. She sleeps a lot compared to what I would sleep. We'd like her to sleep more, but um, she sleeps more. Why is that? Well, because when she's sleeping, she's growing. She's growing. Now, that power that enables her to grow is derived from the very biological requirements we mentioned before, food breast milk exclusively, um, the water she gets from the breast milk, the air she gets that she breathes now independently, not dependent on the umbilical cord. She moves. She's getting sunshine, fresh air. So those things allow her to have what we call good health. Mm. Then she sleeps and she grows. Now, we all know, every doctor in the world knows that if you interrupt a child's sleep too often, it has retarded growth patterns because it doesn't have that inbuilt energy to grow. Similarly with healing, if someone's got a health problem and they wish to reverse it a little bit, to reverse the pathology, they need to have more energy than they've got available at the moment. They need to have more energy. So my emphasis, which is a lot different to most practitioners, is how much energy are you stimulating yourself with every day? How much coffee do you drink? How much tea do you drink? How much chocolate do you eat? How many sweets do you eat? How much sugar do you eat? You know, these things are false stimulants. They're uncompensated energy stimulants. Mm. And we say, get off them first. Right. So if the person's keen to improve their health, don't force energize yourself. Understand that when your energy goes up, by mid-morning after a cup of coffee or tea, it's come down again. That's your real level. That's Got your it. real level. Not up top. That's stimulated level. Got it. That's what we call the sawtooth curve, like a saw. <laughs> jagged edge and so when we get them off the coffee and the tea and the chocolates within two or three days they're generally suffering they're suffering what are they suffering with headaches back pain leg pain sometimes vomiting one in ten people will vomit coming off caffeine one in ten and they vomit normally bile which is not meant to come up north it's meant to stay in your gut and help emulsify fats but it comes out because it's acting as a toxin. It's overproduced. So the body then starts its process of cleaning itself because it hasn't been poisoned. The, the body then gets sick as a means of getting well. And so we say, come off the stimulants. And after about a week, the person comes in, making often no other changes. And they say, you know, I can't believe it. My neck feels a bit better. It's, it's definitely looser. 
you know, I don't feel as stressed out. I don't feel as anxious. I'm sleeping a bit better. Wow. And then if we then move on to dietary changes by reducing the processed foods in their diet, you know, the, the white flour, the white sugar, the biscuits, the lollies, the chocolates, the soft drinks, all of that gunk, refined and ultra-processed foods, which incidentally have just come out only a week ago in the scientific literature as being implicated in mental illness, ultra-processed foods. So we get them to reduce their ultra-processed foods and reduce their consumption of animal protein because some people will eat animal protein four and five times a day, four or five times a day. So we get them to do those things which lowers their body burden. Their body burden is their toxic load. It lowers their inflammatory markers. They then start re reversing their pathology. Why? Because number one, they've got more energy. And number two, they've got more antioxidants and more um, uh, all of those plant-based phytochemicals, all of those beautiful polyphenols coming from vegetables and fruits and berries and legumes and stuff. So they're giving their bodies, number one, they're giving their bodies more energy. They're giving their bodies better nutrition and they're giving more rest. And hence, we see Mother Nature start working for them and not against them. Makes so much sense. Yeah. So they're moving in, they're moving with the natural cycles and um, starting to, um, well, to be more in tune with their bodies and listen to their, listen to their bodies. And I might add to Lawrence, if I could, that does exercise play a role in the reversal of chronic disease? No, initially, no, because it will take energy from the body. Remember our prime um, modus operandi here is to give that body more energy because it's only with more energy we have more healing. Mm. So when we don't um, engage in activities such as exercising, going to the gym and running and doing all this, our bodies have that internal energy, that vital force which can help recalibrate itself and reverse some of that inflammation that's been going on systemically. Does that mean we don't exercise forever? Of course not. It means that it's not appropriate for us at that time. So we then embark, once the person has lowered their body burden, becoming more functional, having more energy, then we implement a graduated exercise and activity program appropriate to their level. Yes. Perfect. We're out of time. I mean, I could ask you many, many more questions, but the last question that I ask all my guests, and I'd love to um, to to ask you, is that this podcast, uh, this show is called the Finding Equilibrium Show. And um, when I say those words to you, uh, and I think I know what the answer is, but what what does finding equilibrium mean to you? Look, finding equilibrium means finding balance. And you know, if you look at an orchestra, you've got four sections to an orchestra. You've got the strings, the woodwind, the percussion, the brass. Now, you know, if you want to hear a good symphony, you know, I'm a music buff. I love classical music. I love all genres of music. When you listen to a lovely symphony, all of those sections, those four sections, are working harmoniously. They're working as one, in sync. Beautiful. Now, can you have a symphony without the violins, without the strings? Of course you could. Would it sound great? No. And similarly with us, we need our bodies to work in equilibrium, in balance. And so we need to look at every aspect of our lives, our diet, our habits of drinking caffeinated and alcoholic beverages, our activity levels. Are we getting enough or too little or too much? Are we getting enough sleep and rest? Have we got mental poise in our heads? Because often people come in and their diets are great, but they're neurotic worriers. They need to check up from the neck up. And so we need to work on things like meditation and tapping and other tools we might use to get them to, to look at life, change their view of life. Because not only do we need a change of way of life, often we need a change of view of life. And so we look at your uh, podcasts as a beautiful thing and well done on what you're doing. I listened to a couple myself, they were fantastic. And equilibrium to me equals balance. Balance. Because when things are out of balance, they don't work as well. No, <laughs> they don't. And Greg, let me just acknowledge you for you know everything that you've done over many years because uh, I know you've impacted very um, 
positively many, many, many lives. And, um, you know, it really is uh, wonderful that you found some time today to actually, um, you know, share some of your uh, experience, your your wisdom with uh, with us. Where can people find, I know you, you shared your email address before, but I'll put it in the notes. What, or, or, what, where can people get in touch with you or, or find out more about the work that you do and, um, and, and also about the natural hygiene um, uh, movement, let's say, because uh, there, there really is a wealth of knowledge there that uh, can really support people. There is that. Um, well, look, my website, as I've said, and will be on your link, I think, is www.healthforlife.com.au. My personal email, which I invite people to send me along an email, I will send you out some of these references and some of these articles I've mentioned, is greg at healthforlife.com.au. Now, for someone who wants to pursue this line of inquiry on natural hygiene, we do run seminars. You attended one the other day, which is not specifically based on just natural hygiene principles. We, we do in, in, uh, incorporate most of those along the way, as you heard, using fasting and things like this. Um, but they, there is a seminar coming up. In fact, a conference coming up next month in June in America, which you can become a virtual member of, which I'm going to become a member of at the NHA, the National Health Association, NHA of America. And it is the, in my humble opinion, the greatest health convention that runs for three days. Um, it is the greatest health convention that is in the world today. I don't say that lightly. I've been lecturing at those um, conferences now until 2020 um, when uh, I wasn't allowed to go overseas. And so from, from before that, for years, I was one of their lecturers. And they've got the most magnificent speakers. And they all speak on the premise that we've talked on today, that the body is self-healing. It is a wonderful, wonderful conference. And I will send anyone out links to that particular conference. It's worthwhile joining as a virtual member and you can get access to it for the rest of the year, not just live. You can keep it and listen to it later. It is Amazing. sensational and it's really beautiful, natural hygiene stuff. Amazing. Amazing. I'll, uh, I'll uh, include the links to that as well and have a look at that myself. So, Greg, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your day. And thank you, everybody, for your time and for your attention. And we'll see you next time.